Hello, and welcome to another episode of Stories from Sydney. The podcast where we read books for you that you've been meaning to read for a long time and then attempt to summarize them to each other while laughing a lot. We do. We certainly do. I'm Jed. (laughs) And I'm Alistair. And last episode, Alistair, I told you a story. We were talking Jarabin or the Hawkesbury Nepean River. Do you remember any of the specifics of my story? I do indeed. It was a really interesting story about partly the history of Blacktown, particularly the native institution of Parramatta that was then moved out to a area close to now uh, the centre of Blacktown that was owned by a family that were involved over many generations in the significant events in the history of that part of Sydney. Indeed. Colby, Yaramundi and Maria were the three people I focused on of the Barubarongu clan. Yeah, it was a really, uh, really interesting story. Today, we're going to be moving slightly further away from Jurabin after three episodes on the topic. I gave you a clue last week. I was wondering if you uh, had any further thoughts about it. I haven't. I know we're looking for some Indigenous people, one of whom is buried in, in England and grave was turned over during railway construction or hopefully moved thoughtfully ahead of the construction. And the other who is buried in the eastern suburbs, I believe. But I don't know who they are. Yeah, so before we clarify who they are and possibly my very misleading clue, (laughs) (laughs) I would like to acknowledge the indigenous custodians of the land upon which I am recording, which is the Bidjigal people of the Eora Nation. And in my instance, the Kootenai people of interior British Columbia. So... I apologize if my clue was a little bit poorly phrased last week, but the grave that was found while construction for HS2 was taking place in Britain was not an an indigenous person's grave. It was none other than the grave of uh, Captain Matthew Flinders. Ah. And the person that we will be talking about today isn't necessarily uh, Flinders himself. It's actually a Bungaree, the indigenous man who was on the voyage that circumnavigated Australia for the first time, along with many other important voyages in the European exploration of the coastlines of Australia. Excellent. That explains why I didn't get it. Uh, Hopefully we're going to be getting into some of the raunchy homosexual debauchery that may or may not have occurred (laughs) on Flinders' expeditions. We're actually not, Jed. It wasn't part of the plan for this one. (laughs) I think we we did briefly touch on it in another episode, but I can't remember which one it was. It was the preservation episode. I thought it was like longer ago than that. Mm. Well, I've been waiting for us to come back to it, but unfortunately it sounds like this isn't the day. I'll continue to speculate from the sidelines. <laughs> uh, anyhow, we'll um, we'll dive right in and get started on the, the story of Bungary. After Durabin skirts along the Cumberland Plain and winds through the high sandstone country uh, with the Sackville Memorial and the jet ski resorts that we were discussing mm-hmm. in the last episode, past Wiseman's Ferry and the Great North Road that we've also had an episode on, uh, it eventually kind of blends into one of the many arms of what we now call Broken Bay. Yes, when you cross the, the Hawkesbury River on the M1, uh, the north side of the bridge is a, uh, a large park with boat rams called Dirabin Reserve, which I did not know until very recently. Is that its name? I did not know. That. I stop there all the time. It's a wonderful spot. Yeah. Well, that means that all your episodes for this season are Dirabin themed. <laughs> Yeah, look, that ties it in because uh, we're fairly confident that our main character for this episode, an Aboriginal man called Bungaree, mm-hmm. uh, was born somewhere near what we now call Broken Bay. So somewhere near this area where this Jurabin Reserve was. Uh-huh. Uh, Bungaree was, uh, particularly in his later years, somewhat of a celebrity in a depressing way, but uh, somewhat of a celebrity around Sydney. And there are actually 17 known portraits of Bungaree, which is a huge number for this uh, time in history. We might only have two or three portraits of some early governors of New South Wales and like maybe like a handful at most of, for instance, Matthew Flinders. But Bungaree was a very, very well portraited man. Good fodder for your social media posts then. Yeah, look, no shortage there. Yeah, and I think someone who was quite prominent in the public consciousness at that time, but someone who I think probably isn't particularly well known now. Yeah, definitely. Very interested. Is he the person who was buried in near Centennial Park? Near Rose Bay somewhere. Okay. Potentially near the golf course. Sorry, that's probably the end. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, in stark contrast to Flinders, who died of very little fanfare, 
uh, so much so that his own daughter couldn't locate his grave a few decades after his death. Wow. Um, and it wasn't located again until the construction of this high-speed rail line. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah. He fell out of fortune in a, a number of ways, but then interestingly, with the creation of uh, Australia as an independent nation and the need for a national narrative, his image was massively boosted as a quintessential early Australian figure. And so he's done very, very well uh, and become hugely famous. So many things named after him where Bungary awareness of him has declined. Okay. So can you give us a bit of a background on what they did individually and together perhaps? Uh, Am I right in saying he circumnavigated Australia? Well, they did. Yes, yes, they did. I thought we'd just start by thinking a bit about Bungary's life before the arrival of European colonists Mm -hmm. and then how he arrives into our um, accounts. But yeah, you're right. It was a complete circumnavigation going anti-clockwise around Australia. Okay. So Bungary is a man whose life we know about solely through European diaries and travelogues and portraits for his this very first generation of Aboriginal Australians who lived full lives pre-contact with Europeans and then a good chunk of their lives post-contact. He therefore wasn't literate. There's no contemporary accounts from an Aboriginal perspective of his life. And we're really at the whims and mercies of what Europeans were saying about him, what they mentioned. Sometimes there's huge gaps. And then also there's obviously a very skewed perspective from their often fairly racist viewpoint of his life. Mm -hmm. So characteristically, we uh, have no real accurate way of determining when he was born. It's very convenient for the narrative to think he was born close to 1770, the year that Captain Cook after stopping in Botany Bay, sailed up the coast and hastily named Port Jackson and Broken Bay, uh, which were just, for him at least, two apparent inlets that he didn't explore any further, but mm-hmm. decided to give names to. He was probably born be a decade to either side of that. Okay. He would have lived kind of a full childhood and come to maturity in traditional Aboriginal society, undisturbed by the arrival of colonial Europeans, and then only in his 20s, come to be fully disrupted and in contact with the nascent colony in Sydney. Yeah, which still would have been fairly far from his territory at that point in time. It's a remote, rugged country. And I don't know that until the Europeans found their way up Jurabin that there was much cause for them to be in Broken Bay. Yeah, so interestingly, the distance is... Yeah, as you said, relatively large, and they're not expanding it hugely rapidly. But the thing that did spread incredibly quickly, which we discussed in the last episode, was smallpox. Yeah, okay. And so the arrival of this epidemic disease had absolutely devastating effects on Aboriginal populations that were outside of the immediate contact of the uh, colonies in Sydney and Parramatta. Yeah, okay. What happened with Bungary, as with many other groups, is that so many people died of smallpox. He ended up drawn towards Sydney with the few survivors of this epidemic. Okay. And how do we know that, if you don't mind me probing? Because that sounds like his perspective kind of thing, which you've said we don't have. Yeah. So I said we're not quite sure when he's born. We're not even 100% sure where he is born. So when we're going on the fact that he's from Broken Bay... Those are mostly because we have, again, European accounts saying that he's from the Broken Bay tribe, which was one of these names given to lots of these Aboriginal groups that were scattered around Sydney based on their purported place of origin. So there was the Broken Bay tribe, the Kissing Point tribe, the Botany Bay tribe, Uh, despite the fact that they weren't currently in that location. That was where they were taken to have originally been from. There are fairly specific comments that Bungary was from the northern shores of Broken Bay, for instance, from Europeans. So presumably they, they'd been in conversation with him. His English got to a point of being very capable of communicating. Mm-hmm. Presumably he talked to and discussed where he was from. Yeah, and why he moved to Sydney. Um, often the early trips to Broken Bay were on foot, as bizarre as that seems. They would take a boat up to Manly or northern reaches of Port Jackson and then walk by foot over to Broken Bay. And some of these early accounts do specifically describe seeing a scattered dead bodies of smallpox victims, along with people who were currently suffering and dying from smallpox. There were observations of the decimation of this population occurring. Yeah, wow. Just as there were around Port Jackson. Yeah. So 
We have this man, Bungary, who at this point isn't in any of the uh, European accounts. He's uh, been living his life at Broken Bay. And where he starts to be massively involved is with the uh, arrival of Flinders and his participation in Flinders trips. So I wanted to be really careful not to just do an entire episode about Flinders. <laughs> not helped along by me. <laughs> yeah, so we're definitely not going to get into Flinders' sexuality because that is a massive tangent for, for now. <laughs> um, but we do need to kind of at least grasp where he's coming from so that we can stitch these two stories together. Yeah. So Flinders comes from a modestly well-off family, but not wildly wealthy or aristocratic. Uh, His father planned for him to be a sensible profession, like a doctor, but uh, he developed an obsessive relationship with the novel Robinson Crusoe, and uh, from that point onwards was destined for a life at sea. He uh, joined the Navy against his uh, father's will at a relatively low rank. He learnt the ropes rather than being given immediately a high-ranking position due to his family uh, (laughs) fortune. Uh, He was... Involved in a couple of battles, I think, or at least one battle. And then he enlisted to head out to the new colony of New South Wales. So I think as we've seen in a lot of earlier episodes, there's two options if you're coming to uh, New South Wales. You're either an aspiring middling sort who's hoping to to make it bigger than you could in Britain, or you're a disgraced posho. Yeah. And he's much more of an aspiring middling sort. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, the rich fabric of Australian colonial history. <laughs> So he sets off uh, on his first trip to the new colony. This is Flinders on the HMS Reliance in 1795. So fairly early in the history of the colony. Yeah. This is an interesting boat trip because there are a couple of very significant characters on board. Firstly, there's Benelong, who's returning from his trip to London after being presented to the king. Yes. And my first guess uh, last episode, but he doesn't die in the UK because he's come back on the Reliance. Yeah, yeah. So sadly, however, Benelong had traveled to London with another young indigenous man called Yamarawani, who had died in in Britain of a lung infection. Right. And Benelong too had fallen ill towards the end of his trip. I imagine London's not a particularly healthy place to be at this time. No. (laughs) Nursing him back to health uh, on the ship was the ship surgeon George Bass. Oh, nice. Who Benelong actually apparently instructed in the indigenous language of Sydney during their lengthy sessions together while uh, George Bass was caring for his health. Yes, and he struck it off with Flinders. Yes, exactly. So on this ship, we have Benelong, Bass, and Flinders. I think we also have a returning governor, but I've neglected to mention him. That's fine. (laughs) Yeah, he's not our concern right now. Uh, Bass, however, is somewhat of our concern. So Bass was a farmer's son, so also from relatively modest background, and he was soon to be Flinders' good friend, perhaps lover, and as you said, they must have hit it off on this trip back. And are they both working on the ship? Navy men doing ship business? They're not just uh, yeah. gentry, you know, making notes in their in their cabins. <laughs> yeah, demanding to be taken ashore so they can collect specimens. <laughs> yeah. You know the type. Yeah, no. Uh, Bass is in the Navy as a, a surgeon. Uh, so that's why he's caring for Benelong. Uh-huh, and yep. um, Flinders is also employed by the Navy. Swabbing the decks, probably. Yeah, yeah, exactly. As you as you asked, uh, what, what was his job? Well, the thing he really wanted to do wasn't really, you know, swabbing the decks. He wanted to go and explore uncharted territory around Sydney. And so after hitting it off with Bass, uh, Flinders and Bass did a number of small trips on very small open boats, like not much more than dinghies, exploring the Georges River, port hacking. And then Flinders was even involved in picking up the crew and salvaged cargo of the Sydney Cove. Yes, Tying into your episode? Yes. Uh, I did, I, I'd forgotten that part. Yeah, and they went down to find the coal that the survivors had spotted down in the Illawarra. Oh, okay. Yeah, and then, of course, Bass and Flinders uh, went on their most famous voyage together as a duo, the three-month circumnavigation of Van Diemen's Land, that, that is Tasmania, mm-hmm. uh, which was on a ship called the Norfolk, which I found out was a ship built entirely from Norfolk pine. Oh, nice. So it is at least possible, (laughs) (laughs) if not advisable. I did insist that it was not a good material for building ships in our episode where we were talking about wood. I don't think many other ships are made of this, but... (laughs) If it can circumnavigate Tasmania, then I think you might have been too hasty. Yeah, Yeah, look, it, it worked apparently to some extent. Who knows how long it held up for, but... Flinders was very happy with it, and he seems to have enjoyed uh, spicing things up by working with substandard tools anyway, so he was up, <laughs> up for it. 
<laughs> yeah. All right. So they've uh, definitively proved that Tasmania was an island. They've charted the Bass Strait and Flinders has named it after his friend. And they arrive back in Sydney in early 1799. And later that year, Bass sails back to England, makes a substantial speculative investment in a trading ship, takes that ship out for its first voyage. He's also part of the crew that will sail on it. And something must have gone disastrously wrong because he's never heard from again and is officially declared lost at sea. Okay, so that's the end of the Bass story then, except for his eponymous strait. Yeah, exactly. So we're in 1799, Flinders has lost his companion and is looking for a new companion, definitely looking for someone to communicate with indigenous people he would encounter. Who knows whether Bass's rudimentary uh, learnings with Ben along on the ship had helped him to communicate with indigenous people. Probably not hugely. And this is exactly <laughs> where Bungary enters the scene and becomes part of our historical uh, record. Yes, well, I'm pre- presumably not with the Tasmanian um, Aboriginal people because they've been separate for like 10,000 years or something. So I can't imagine there was a great deal of linguistic similarity. Yes, no, it wouldn't, wouldn't have helped in that case. Maybe when maybe on the Georges River and the, the smaller initial <laughs> yeah, adventures. Okay. Um, so the first trip that Bungary participates in is up north to Morton Bay, named after James Douglas, 14th Earl of Morton. Oh, there you go. This was a, a name provided by Captain Cook when he sailed through the area. The idea was for Flinders to go back up there and get a more accurate picture of what exactly there was in the area. This trip started very badly in terms of uh, the relationship between Flinders and the local indigenous people, brought on by a disagreement over a cabbage tree hat, which was a popular hat in early Sydney made from the leaves of the cabbage tree palm, which we also discussed in a previous episode. Uh huh. Don't know if we got onto the hats, though. No, I don't think so. Give me one moment while I pull up a photo of a cabbage tree hat. <laughs> a very sophisticated looking hat. <laughs> All right, so now we can have our first account of Bungary's skills as a communicator with local Indigenous people in areas where he didn't speak a language that was mutually intelligible, Mm -hmm. but was much better at communicating in productive ways than the European explorers. So they arrive in this kind of shallow bay, they see some Indigenous people on the shore, and as they seem to be friendly, Bungary wished to make them a visit. And seeing nothing among them but pieces of firewood, which the natives usually carry with them, the boat was backed in and he jumped on shore naked, this is Bungary, and as unarmed as they themselves appeared. So Bungary then goes over to the indigenous people of what we now call Morton Bay, uh, exchanges a yarn band that he wore around his waist for a narrow band of kangaroo hair. Things were going very nicely. And then the English sailors are in the distance with their muskets kind of being surly. And Matthew Flinders, uh, wearing his splendid cabbage tree hat, decides to join Bungary, but takes his gun with him. Of course. Yeah. He then puts down his gun and holds out a... Uh, I don't know why... They seem to have always wanted to be trading woolen caps, like woolen nightcaps. Wildly inappropriate for Queensland's climate. <laughs> I know. Why you would want a woolen hat is beyond me. And... Unsurprisingly, the indigenous people didn't really want this woolen hat. They were quite taken by his splendid cabbage tree hat. So uh, they made it quite clear that they didn't want the woolen one and they <laughs> wanted the, uh, the cabbage tree one. Again, you'd think at this point, it's a beautiful hat, right? But surely you would give the hat over to these people. Very replicatable. Yeah, exactly. You can make another hat. This is an important interaction. You're imposing yourself on these people's land. But what do you think Flinders did? Shot him. Yeah, so eventually, yeah, he's like, no, not giving you the hat. This starts to become a bit more of a titchy standoff. Flinders is absolutely not backing down on this. He's not going to give up his hat. (laughs) They start retreating back to the boat. And apparently, at first, these Aboriginal men who are kind of following them start laughing and they flick Flinders' hat off his head with the long stick. It's all kind of a bit... (laughs) A bit playful. They all giggle as, as he has to get down and pick up his cabbage tree hat off the ground. But the whole thing is obviously a bit fraught. And then as Flinders and Bunkery are sailing away, they're getting in their boat to leave. They're that adamant that they're not going to give up this cabbage tree hat. An Aboriginal man throws a piece of firewood. And then after that, a spear is thrown over their boat and into the water behind them. And apparently this is considered an impudent and unprovoked attack which then results, as you so sadly were able to predict, in the use of firearms. This has massively escalated at this point. Yeah. 
Flinders fires his musket on an Aboriginal man on the beach, wounding him from the account that they're able to give of him hobbling off into the forest. Other shots are fired into the group, and Bungary, after later speaking with the Indigenous people there, says that another man was also injured. And this is, unsurprisingly, the end of Flinders' ability to communicate productively with the Indigenous people of this area, despite the fact that they're planning to stay for quite a number of weeks exploring it in more detail. Yeah, I mean, we always focus on how sometimes reading these accounts makes it difficult for us to interpret uh, the motivations and, and actions of the Indigenous people, but I think it's probably worth pointing out that the British behaviour in these sorts of situations is sometimes just as impenetrable to us. <laughs> yeah. I can't possibly imagine what he was thinking, you know? <laughs> Yes, I'm often struck by how much of it needs to be for the Europeans an imposition of power. They always want to firmly establish from the start military superiority and that they're dictating the terms of the transaction. Yeah. There's very little consideration of this as a reciprocal goodwill interaction. Yeah, which seems like a bizarre way to go about something in that particular instance. If you're in the process of establishing a colony, maybe that sort of display of power is the right approach for your goals. But if you're there to sort of explore and spend some time, it would seem to me completely unnecessary to be so provocative. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So this location where firearms were used in what seems a completely unnecessary way was named Point Skirmish. It's now called Skirmish Point and it's on the southern tip of Bribie Island. Uh-huh. But the somewhat more uplifting part of the story is that just a little bit further along Bribie Island is the current suburb of Bungary, named after Bungary, because Bungary was somehow able to turn this situation around in the Moreton Bay area. And despite the use of firearms, he was able to re-establish good relationships between this boat and the people in the area. One of the incidents that's recorded in Flinders Journal involves Bungary uh, demonstrating the use of a woomera, which is a spear-throwing device. I don't know if you know much about it, Jed. Mm-hmm. Not a great deal. It's like a shield-looking contraption, like a like a narrow shield, and it facilitates throwing a spear much further than you'd otherwise be able to. Yeah, exactly. The physics of how that works is actually beyond me, <laughs> but I've seen it employed successfully before. I believe from my very limited understanding that the idea is if you artificially extend the length of your arm by using such a device, you can throw the spear much further. Right, okay. Yeah, and this was not a technology that was in use in this area of what we now call Queensland. And so okay. it was a great interest to the Indigenous people there. Well, if Flinders had his way, Bungary would have used it to throw a spear at them more efficiently. <laughs> Thankfully not. So th- this was one interesting cultural difference that Bungary was able to then bring to this area and show an Aboriginal technology that was not currently used in that area. Mm-hmm. But equally, there were um, technologies used by the people in uh, Morton Bay that were fascinating to him and to Flinders. So there are extensive notes on the use of huge, powerful nets that required multiple Indigenous people to drag across the shallow waters of the bay, which could then capture huge numbers of fish. Okay. What were they made out of? I uh, must have been some form of woven fibers. I'm not sure exactly what they used. Um, but the Flinders describes one of these nets being around 80 feet long, which is quite a large net. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Additionally, there were lots of notes on how substantial the housing built by Indigenous people in this area was. So they had uh, structures which were estimated to be able to lodge uh, 12 people inside and were very sturdy. So these are much larger structures than the ones used around Port Jackson. Yeah, okay. That's interesting. In a lot of these early accounts, it's not uncommon to hear reports of like fairly substantial permanent habitations. I think in Dark Emu, Bruce Pascoe kind of brings together a whole host of these accounts. His argument is that Indigenous Australians weren't hunter-gatherers, they were agricultural, Mm. which is a whole separate conversation. But yeah, a lot of first accounts by Europeans talk about finding what they describe as like villages or abandoned towns or settlements. And it's fun and interesting because it's just so at odds with what popular conception in Australia is of how Indigenous people lived. We're so misinformed. And I wonder if that's because we sort of fixate on this idea of how the people of Sydney Cove lived 
and then just extrapolate that across the whole country. Yes, I definitely think there's a lot of that hasty extrapolation going on because the observation made here was that this is a very different culture that's far more sedentary than the people that were around Sydney Cove. But then as we already know, even around Jurabin, there's more agricultural practices going on and possibly a more sedentary lifestyle for that reason. So it is very dependent on the, the local conditions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And do we know the name of the people of Bribey Island and Morton Bay that's still in use? Yes, uh, I believe this would have been the Undanbi people of the Turubul uh, language group, based on the language group later in that area, about 25 years later when... Uh, Brisbane was founded. Yeah so, <laughs> yeah, so they come in, do a bit of exploring, actually fail to discover the inlet where the Brisbane River meets up with Morton Bay and sail back home but about 25 years later is when they return to establish i think quite a harsh penal settlement in brisbane interesting so we talked briefly about the um demonstrations of the Woomera that Bungary was giving in this area and his uh, ability to re-establish better relationships with the indigenous people must have been uh, quite impressive because by the end of their trip Flinders crew and Bungary are participating in a large congregation with indigenous people singing songs around a fire and going through a ceremony where they exchange names to one another. Mm-hmm. Flinders depressingly attributes this re-establishment of friendly relationships to the local people recognizing the superior force of his firearms. But I think there's a fairly good case to be made for uh, the presence of Bungary and his ability to communicate massively, uh, increasing the success of this trip and possibly avoiding further catastrophe. Yeah, yeah. And our, our friends from the Sydney Cove ship are sort of a testament to this in that it seems unsurprising that the the best sort of cultural exchange or um, signs of friendship occur when the threat of violence is not as present. Yeah, exactly. So after this, uh, another feather in the cap for Flinders, the successful voyage of discovery to Moreton Bay, in which he was uh, saved by the diplomatic skills of Bungary. He returns to England uh, mm-hmm. to talk up all of his achievements to Sir Joseph Banks and to get funding for his next big goal, which is the circumnavigation of the continent. So he leaves, uh, this trip to Morton Bay is 1799. He leaves in 1800. This is Flinders. Uh-huh. And in the two years uh, between Flinders leaving and when he's coming back for the, the big one, Bungary pops up in the records again that we have. And this is on no other than the first official government trip to examine and survey the entrance to Coal River or Coal Harbour which we now know as Hunter's River. Ah, yes. Yet to be named after the governor. Yes. So I think they'd at least been some small mishaps that had uh, resulted in them knowing that there was coal in this area. I think some escaped convicts had ended up there. Yep. But on their attempt to get back to this river and find out more, Bungary volunteered to come along for the trip and again facilitate interaction with indigenous people. But he was called upon earlier than he perhaps expected because they accidentally sailed into Lake Macquarie, thinking that it was the river. (laughs) A local Aboriginal man came running towards them. Uh, I think probably a little concerned that this ship should not be going into this uh, this lake. (laughs) (laughs) Watch out for the sandbar, mate. And Bungary was uh, called upon to sit down with him uh, and to try to communicate, find out what had gone wrong. The accounts here say that uh, Bungary invited the man as a sign of friendship to sit down, which was always considered a greeting to establish good relations. And the two sat down in profound silence, apparently for 20 minutes with one another, before beginning to try to communicate. Bungary wasn't able to provide a great deal of information out of this encounter. So the the assumption is that the language was different enough from the one that Mm. he spoke that it was a little difficult to communicate. Okay. And at least from the other Europeans around who spoke small smatterings of the language of the Sydney area, they found it completely unintelligible, the language being spoken around what we now call Lake Macquarie. Yeah, I really love this image of two people who know that they're going to have a hard time communicating with one another, just sitting in a sort of profound silence for 20 minutes, letting things settle before starting with the process of communication. It just It's such a simple thing, but it seems so far out of our modern approach to something like that. Yeah, yes. Actually, you could learn a lot from that, right? I feel like we tend to babble and garble when we... Uh, struggling to communicate (laughs) and just make things worse. Also, good news for the expedition, there's plenty of coal in Lake Macquarie as well. Yes, they they did notice that, actually. (laughs) 
<laughs> and that was later to be exploited, but I think uh, it wasn't their initial goal. So this accidental entry into Lake Macquarie led to the local place name of Reed's Mistake, named after the pilot William Reed, who mistakenly uh, called out that this was in fact the Hunter River. And he's never been able to let it live it down. And I believe Reed's Mistake is still a local uh, place name uh, at the entrance to Lake Macquarie. Haven't heard of it, but uh, I'll have to check it out. Swansea Heads, we call it now. Yes, there was also a time when the area around Reed's Mistake or Swansea Heads was known as Bungaree's Nora in the early 1800s, uh, associated with Bungaree. And also Nora Head mm-hmm. is associated with Bungaree. There are a couple of much, much later accounts which associate them with Bungary as a place of his birth. Okay. I, I believe that those are probably incorrect, that it's much more likely that these two locations are associated with the name Bungary because of his participation in this early voyage up to Newcastle, uh, rather than that he was actually from this area. Okay. It's Bungary's Nora. Does Nora mean something that we know of? Very good question, Jed. I think I'm very, very uh, unconfident in saying that there was some suggestion that it possibly means Bungary's grinding stone, but I would place very little confidence in that assertion. Great. (laughs) I'll be careful when I repeat it. (laughs) Yeah, don't repeat that with any confidence. All right. So after this brief interruption at Reed's mistake, they make it up to what's now Newcastle. But Bungary soon left the trip, and there are lots of notes about how much difficulty they had establishing relations with local indigenous population because of Bungary's absence. And it's unknown whether he made his way back to Sydney on foot or in some vessel at some later point, but the only thing that we do know is that he's then back in Sydney a year or so later when Flinders returns to begin his circumnavigation. Uh Uh-huh. The part that I found particularly exciting about this was the suggestion that the voyage was partly proposed to look for a passage that a rogue American called Captain Williamson had claimed in 1798 that he had sailed through from the south coast of Australia all the way through up to the Gulf of Carpentaria, right through the middle of the continent, a magnificent water body known as Williamson Strait. It's such a good story, (laughs) but then I've later found out that it might not actually be true. Apparently, there's a 2013 journal article in the academic journal Globe, which is published by the Australian and New Zealand Map Society. Sounds like a great society. I know. And you'll be even more interested when I tell you that the name of the article is Getting the Straight Facts Straight. So it was a, it's a fictional, he made, he didn't even make it up. We can't even pin this on some errant American. Yeah. Look, it was behind a paywall. So I only read the, uh, (laughs) only read the abstract, but uh, yeah, apparently this idea that uh, European explorers strongly believe there to be a straight North South through the continent might not have been actually a strong belief that they were following. Yeah. It's a shame. Yeah. Plenty of other good reasons to circumnavigate the place. And they had a reasonable idea of what the landmass looked like, right? Because we've got, you know, they've established that Tasmania is an island. We've got Dutch accounts plus presumably others from the West Coast. Obviously, the British have done a significant amount of up and downing on the East Coast by this point. So they must have a reasonable idea of what they're dealing with, right? Yes, this is a very good summary you just provided, Jed. They do have a reasonable to incredibly detailed view of large chunks of the coastline and then there are other parts that are just more or less a mystery so as you said the dutch sailing across the indian ocean would occasionally accidentally hit the west coast of australia for instance in the famous batavia shipwreck Mm -hmm. but then generally from that point after making that mistake they would then try to avoid the coastline as much as possible so that area of the coastline was not particularly well charted it was known about but not all the details equally what we now call the great australian bight was not very well known at all because the ships sailing to the east coast of Australia would skirt much lower, going around the south of Tasmania historically, because they didn't know that it wasn't attached to the mainland, so they would miss the southern coast completely. But what we do have is the southeast corner, Tasmania, and all the way up the east coast from Captain Cook's voyages, and then these later trips that Flinders had been recently doing, that's all very well charted and very well known. 
And then again, it gets a bit murky in the, the north and the northwest. Now you have those really detailed parts of the coastline in the historical maps and then just like broad curves or lines that they clearly yeah. don't quite know what's there. Yeah. My favorite bit is when they fill in the blanks with, with what turned out to be wildly inaccurate guesswork. Yeah. One of my favorites is California is an island because they just like assumed that Baja California, that inlet just kept going up. Oh, yeah, yeah. I haven't seen that, but I can see the, the assumption there. Makes sense. Okay, we sailed in there for a few days. And kept going, so <laughs> must continue through. There was a suggestion that this was two continents with a with a waterway down the middle. Yes. Uh, and if it were, there was this serious concern that the French were trying to trying to barge their way in and get their own colonial conquests happening in this large southern continent. Potentially could claim the western half for themselves. Yes. And the Flinders trip is racing with a French trip in competition as they explore. The French trip goes quite badly in different ways, but they manage to get back to Europe first, the French, and claim a lot of the credit that Flinders misses out on. Okay. All right, so Flinders basically arrives across the Indian Ocean and then charts the south coast of the continent in enormous detail, runs into the French in Encounter Bay, South Australia. He names Kangaroo Island for the large number of delicious kangaroos that could be found there Mm -hmm. and thinks that he's been the first to chart and discover as a European Port Phillip, where Melbourne will grow up, its arrival, uh, Sydney finds out when he arrives in Sydney that someone bloody beat him to it by a few months. But it's here in Sydney in 1802 where he finds out this disappointing news, but also gets to pick up his old friend Bungary, of whom he says, and this is a quote, I had before experienced much advantage from the presence of a native of Port Jackson in bringing about a friendly intercourse with the inhabitants of other parts of the coast. Bungary, the worthy and brave fellow who had sailed with me on the Norfolk, now volunteered again. That's nice, isn't it? Yeah, a lot of people, especially in these years, in the early 1800s, have very glowing things to say about Bungary. I also feel like there's a tacit acknowledgement in there that his gun-slinging ways might not have been the most appropriate way to uh, intercourse with the natives of the coast. He's at least giving some credit here, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. And in these journals and later publications that are written by Flinders, he does refer to Bungary consistently as a friend of his. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the relationship would have been doused in all kinds of different power relationships, so it wouldn't be a traditional friendship, but he does appear to have thought very highly of Bungary. Yeah, I mean, it was obviously mutual to some extent because a year's passed, you know. And they're back together. Yeah. And all the accounts are very much that Bungary is volunteering to join these expeditions. He's not strong-armed or forced into them. He seems to be keen to be part of them. Yeah. It's mind-boggling to me that you could grow up in a society where a ship like this was completely alien. Yeah. And then within your lifetime, get to a point where you're volunteering to go on trips in this. Yeah, yeah. So, again, we have lots of accounts of when this expedition wants to stop to gain firewood or wants to stop to collect some botanical specimens, as we discussed earlier, uh, that Bungary is able to really help out with the relations with the indigenous people. So when they want to pull in on the northern tip of Fraser Island, initially there were Aboriginal warriors waving branches and gesturing for the colonial expedition to return to their ship. But after Bungary stripped off his clothes and laid aside his spear, as an inducement for them to wait for him and begin discourse. He was able to approach these Aboriginal warriors, and after an exchange of gifts, he was able to bring 20 of these warriors back to the European boats, where they all feasted upon the blubber of two porpoises that had been brought on shore expressly for this purpose of sharing with the Indigenous people, and uh, established good relations that then allowed Fraser Island to be a small base for some time to collect specimens and necessary... uh, Firewood. Yeah, and water and things like that. Uh Uh-huh. All right, so in terms of naming things, we have Kangaroo Island and Bass Strait. Then this expedition ends up sailing between the reef and the coastline up through Queensland. And because it formed a bloody great barrier and was really hard to get through and out of back to the open ocean, it was referred to as the Great Barrier Reef. (laughs) Quite an apt name. Excellent. And uh, I think in naming at least these three things, and then, of course, the big one in Australia, which was a Flinders invention, and he was really adamant that that was a good name for it and not 
New Holland or uh, New South Wales. I think Flinders has done a good job of naming things not after earls and viscounts and after things that I think become quite quintessential Australian names. Yeah, and perhaps that's why he's so celebrated in some respect, that sort of first inklings of a European-Australian identity. Everyone prior to that was very much just caught up in being an outpost of empire. Yeah, definitely the part about strongly advocating for the name Australia is, yeah, obviously you can see where that becomes an important figure in the history of the nation. Interestingly, he does refer to Aboriginal people as Australians. The first ever use of the term Australian is in the context of talking about Aboriginal people. Yeah, okay. Bungaree is also one of the very first people ever to be called by the name Australian. Okay, wow. A bit of a backtrack, but the Kangaroo Island naming. Yeah. You threw me off there because that's South Australia. Yes. But we're heading anti-clockwise. So we've started from Sydney and we've gone up to the reef. We have not named Kangaroo Island yet. Yeah, this is an excellent point. This always confused me as well. The thing that's difficult is that really Flinders did quite a lot more than a circumnavigation. He did almost two circumnavigations. Okay. So he, when he's hitting Kangaroo Island and the Great Australian Bight and all of that, this is before he's met up with Bungaree. Right. And this is on his way to Sydney. Then he arrives at Sydney, and that's when we'll say that his circumnavigation officially begins. Okay. And he heads up to Fraser Island, Great Barrier Reef. This is what we're talking about. This is with Bungaree yep. on board. Yep. Yeah, so then and then he heads all the way around. Okay, thanks for the clarification. I was getting a bit lost. <laughs> I get a bit lost too. <laughs> no worries. I'm glad you, uh, glad you brought up. There's an interesting anecdote. This is on the north coast of Australia where Bungaree often is spearfishing to provide some food for the voyage, some fresh uh, meat. And he catches three small rays and a mullet. And interestingly, the Aboriginal people of at least the Broken Bay area refused to eat shark or rays, but Bungaree was so steeped in the formalities of British manners that he insisted that the others would eat the delicate and delicious mullet fish that's better eating than the rays, even though he would therefore go without any of this seafood. Flinders gets kind of involved in this polite off and insists that Bungaree does eat some of the mullet while he would happily eat the ray because he doesn't mind at all. I think in stark contrast to that uh, account that you were giving on Jarvan where they (laughs) took all the superior food that the Aboriginal people had gathered uh, much to the distaste of the Aboriginal people they were with. Yeah, Colby refused to go and get the duck when asked why he said, we never get any of the duck. And Tench was like, well, I couldn't argue with that. They don't. (laughs) Yeah, so it looks like maybe there was a slightly better relationship here. Yeah, okay. Yeah. All right. So sadly, by this point, the boat that they're on has really started to leak badly. It's in very bad condition. And problems with the voyage are made worse by a stop in Timor to try to fix the boat and also get some water, which uh, turns out to make a huge number of the crew incredibly sick with dysentery and so in a leaking boat with dysentery rife and the crew dropping like flies flinders fuming that he can't get more charting (laughs) living his robinson crusoe fantasy (laughs) yeah he seems to be a very pedantic and obsessive charter of coastlines he really enjoys the nitty-gritty of getting it all written down on the the map Uh Uh, but he has to really kind of speed up the rest of the trip to get back to sydney so that they can not die (laughs) exactly so the rest of the trip is a a lot speedier and less eventful but it does conclude the first circumnavigation of australia of which bungaree was a part very nice all right so shortly after this trip in 1804 we have a few more scattered accounts of bungaree's activities he is again quite involved in the early history of newcastle because in 1804 the second attempt to settle Newcastle occurs, which is the one that sticks. And this is as a a secondary place of punishment for the unsuccessful convicts involved in the Vinegar Hill uprising, Mm -hmm. which we have never covered on this podcast, but we could at some point. Bungaree accompanied the group up to establish the settlement and the lieutenant in charge wrote a letter back to Sydney informing the governor that Bungaree was on full rations and had stayed on because he is the most intelligent of that race that I have as yet seen and should a misunderstanding unfortunately take place, he will be sure to reconcile things. (laughs) That's a great passage. (laughs) 
This, uh, this lieutenant also goes on to say that, sadly, as you can imagine, there are undertones here of these misunderstandings. Uh, he goes on to say that he's given strict instructions to vessels venturing up the river for coal and red cedar, that they must treat the Aboriginal people in a friendly manner. And this is the quote. I know that they have frequently been very ill-used by some who are neither guided by principle or humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's obviously violence and atrocities already taking place. Yeah, wow, that is very early in the piece on the Upper Hunter. The next account that we have is only a few months later in 1804 of Bungaree's whereabouts. And at this point, he's back in Sydney at Farm Cove, which is now the Botanical Gardens, right? Just around from Benelong Point, where the Opera House is. Yeah, where that tour guide misidentified the tank stream. That's right. Yes, indeed. It's not where the tank stream is. I imagine you might have come across accounts of large corroborees and ritual combat taking place on Farm Cove at some time in your reading. Yeah, sounds familiar. Yeah, Farm Cove seems to have been an important location, even though the reason it was called Farm Cove was because it was used as a government farm. I think it was under kind of government mm-hmm. control. There continued to be the use of this land by indigenous people, which is where there's this bleeding together of the city of Sydney and its European structures and the indigenous use of the land, early on at least. And in this account written in 1804, there's a ritual battle taking place and Bungary is described what seems to be throwing a boomerang in one of the very earliest accounts of boomerang throwing in Australia. Okay. Given how uh, interesting and unique the boomerang is as an object and how it's later described with great fascination and awe, it probably suggests that the coastal Aboriginals between Botany Bay and Broken Bay didn't use it because the idea would be we'd probably have heard an account sooner about it. And we do know that the word boomerang is a Darug word. Okay. So it's to add to our Darug Uh list. Very good. And it was used further inland then. How Bungary may have potentially become acquainted with it is uh, unsure, but potentially he came to know about it while further inland along the Hunter River when he was uh, in that area. The quote from the Sydney Gazette says, The white spectators were justly astonished at the dexterity and incredible force with which a bent-edged waddy, which is a hunting throwing stick, resembling slightly a Turkish scimitar, was thrown by Bungary, a native distinguished by his remarkable courtesy. (laughs) That's great. So this account doesn't particularly describe the returning nature of the boomerang, which in this case, we're talking about a returning boomerang because there are also the hunting boomerangs that are a throwing stick, non-returning. It seems like there are accounts of these from very early on. These were in use by the coast. But a very, very detailed account of a returning boomerang is also given about 20 years later, but also associated with Bungary. A French explorer is invited by Bungary to come and again witness a ritual, this time somewhere past the brick fields, which would be somewhere around current Surrey Hills. Mm -hmm. And from the French explorer, we have the description. I estimate at almost 45 degrees the angle under which it slowly rises and at 150 feet at least the distance it reaches. After describing pirouettes and undulations for this tremendous distance, it turns back on its tracks with the same movement and comes back to fall near the thrower so that anyone beside him at first does not know what to do to avoid the boomerang. Okay, so he's developed a bit of a reputation for boomerang spectacles. Yeah, yeah. So he's definitely involved in these early boomerang spectacles. And I was really interested in this part because sadly, I'm I'm very ignorant of where different objects strongly associated with Aboriginal culture are are from. Because I believe, for instance, the didgeridoo is not from this part of Australia and much more from kind of northern Australia. Mm -hmm. And despite the fact that often you'll think of a didgeridoo and a boomerang next to each other, actually, those two objects might come from very different parts of this continent. But the boomerang is actually from an area relatively close to Sydney. Okay, the returning boomerang. The returning boomerang. Yeah, right. All right, so after this mention of Bungary at Farm Cove in 1804, shortly after the trip with Flinders around the continent, there is no mention of Bungary in print until 10 years later. And we don't really know what he was doing at that point. Mm -hmm. Uh, But for the years of the Rum Corps coup, And the early years of Macquarie's reign as governor, we don't have any account of what Bungary was up to. Yeah, okay. Well, it's more than we've got of Yaramundi. Yeah, this is a relatively well-documented life, but it's still, you can't tell a clear biography, right? We're completely dependent on mentions of him in 
sources that aren't dedicated to his life. Yeah. All right. So then the next mention, this is 10 years later, this is 1814, 1815. And this is the same topic we were discussing in the last episode. This is Macquarie's creation of the native institution uh, forming of the first public native conference in the marketplace at Parramatta and first attempts at this was it a conciliation was that the official name of the the policy yes yeah yeah in the same month as the native institution is established in Parramatta the equivalent uh, philosophy is taking place much closer to Sydney where Macquarie takes a large party by boat to George's head along with a large group of aboriginals including Bungary to establish a farm at George's head which you might have heard of yeah, I have. Can't tell you much about it, but yeah, there was a some sort of attempt to establish an indigenous-run farm. I don't recall it being a great success. No, it was not at all successful. I think uh, within about six months, there's written accounts saying that it's completely collapsed. They were fairly unimpressed by the huts that they were provided with. And probably a good indication of just how unimpressed Bungary was is that only a few years later, he was signing up for another journey of discovery, this one trying to chart parts of the coast missed by Flinders after the leaking boat and illness in Timor, and to finally complete the full map of the Australian coast. Yeah, so he's a wandering man, doesn't want to be contained to a single farm on the harbour. Exactly. The botanist on board this ship notes that Bungary was taken on this journey, quote, at his own very particular request. And also uh, provides an interesting anecdote about Bungary's views of these huts. So the botanist says, It's clear that the Aboriginal people prefer the open air to the shelter of a hut, even in a cold night. Bungary appearing to think very lightly of the governor's judgment in providing such a hamlet by the contemptuous shrug he gave in replying to the question, How he liked the houses. His response was, Mari Budjuri, which means very good. Posey rain, I suppose, if it rains. Uh, he was not very impressed by these houses at all. And I believe that there are also accounts that materials were kind of dismantled and then sold so that they could then buy other... More useful things. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I also feel like if I were used to sleeping outside under the stars, it would seem also fairly ridiculous if someone was trying to put a roof over my head when I didn't want it. Yeah, and it's like a dirt floor, leaky hut. <laughs> You know, they're still not that great. Yeah, no, absolutely. All right. So Bungary is very happy to volunteer for this trip under Captain King, a direct relation of uh, Governor King, I think his son, up to the north coast where they complete the charts. He is involved as an intermediary again with uh, indigenous people, though he doesn't seem to have enjoyed it quite as much because he doesn't voyage with King again on his later journeys. But interestingly, his spot is taken in these future journeys by another Aboriginal man called Bundell, who had extensive sailing experience as part of the sealing and whaling industry uh, along the south coast of Australia. And apparently that industry involved uh, quite a lot of Aboriginal people who were always able to get positions as full crew members on sealing and whaling expeditions. Right. Didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't either. Still waiting on your whaling episode. I know. I know. I don't know if it'll ever come. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So it's really after this last trip that Bungary makes that we see a major decline in his health. He stays around the Sydney area and he increasingly seems to have uh, serious problems with alcohol addiction and becomes a figure of ridicule and mock respect on the fringes of Sydney society. So I didn't want to dwell too long on this part of his life because it's fairly repetitive, but it also is the part of his life that's the most well-documented. I guess there's more people around Sydney at this time. There's more people writing accounts. And this is also when all of the portraits are drawn of him after 1815. He cuts a very distinctive figure in Sydney because he's nearly always seen in large, extravagant British military hat. Okay. And a red military coat. So he's got an extravagant get up on him. He also has a large brass gorget, which I think we discussed briefly in our last episode. Yeah. Who who had one? Naragingi had one. Okay. From uh, the land grant, he also got a 
Courgette, who dished out Bungaree's one? So I believe the two are probably tied quite closely. It was also Macquarie, early 1815. Uh-huh. The time of creating the George's Head farm. Uh-huh. Bungaree was presented with a gorget, I think the name Bungaree, and then chief of the Broken Bay tribe. Okay, yeah. Which he seems to have kept with him and worn for a long time after that. In many of the portraits, he's depicted wearing this gorget. I found out a little bit more about gorgets. So it's a gorget comes from the French gorge for a throat, and they were originally in medieval times developed as a significant piece of armor between the helmet and the breastplate to protect your neck. Okay. They become obviously decorative status symbols for European military people to wear as part of their full dress uniforms in the 1700s. And they were, I didn't realize this, still worn uh, by european officers uh through into the 1830s in australia uh-huh. to depict their rank and things like that i don't know if they were smaller but this idea of a gorget was something that was already in use okay but they had been used in uh, north america particularly as prizes and tokens of appreciation for north american indigenous warriors who were fighting in european wars between the french and the english and were quite prized and successful in these relationships. And so Macquarie, since he'd served some time in North America, probably brought that idea to Australia. Okay. And was anyone dishing him out apart from him? I think he started the tradition and they continued to be dished out throughout Australia through into actually the early 20th century. Oh, okay. And do we know where Bungaree's gorget ended up? We do not. Hmm. But one of his wives was known as Queen Gooseberry and her gorget is still intact and in a museum. I think two of hers possibly are. Okay. After the aside, we've got this picture of a man in a tattered but uh, impressive full military uniform with the gorget. I'll give a quick account of how he would greet people coming into Sydney Harbour. So this is the very first account we have of a practice that Bungaree would participate in for the next decade and that was much commented on. A man called Captain Bellingshausen. A very German-sounding name, but he was in the, mm. the Russian Explorer. And his account says that upon his arrival in Sydney, and I quote, About midday, a family of natives arrived on board in a dirty European boat from the North Shore. They spoke a little broken English, bowed very low to the Europeans, and made grimaces to express their delight. One of them wore the worn-out trousers of a British sailor, and on his forehead there was a plated band decorated with red clay and mud, and on his neck he wore a copper plate in the shape of a crescent moon, with the inscription Bungaree, chief of the Broken Bay tribe, 1815. Indicating his companions, Bungaree told Bellingshausen, These are my people, and then pointing to the north shore of the harbour, This is my land. And it seems like this greeting in which Bungaree introduced himself and then introduced his people and his land to uh, any incoming ship is repeated throughout the rest of his life. And it generally, sadly, also involves his requests to toast the health of the captain with a strong drink and also requests for tobacco. Yeah. There are a lot of different takes on what was going on here. I think there's a strong current of playing the court jester of yeah being a comical figure in order to get the commodities that you're looking for and in that Bungaree was very successful and he was able to get the rum and the brandy and the tobacco that he was seeking and then live this fringe existence on the northern coast of the harbor yeah the, the exact location where Bungaree seemed to set up was interestingly almost exactly known because this Russian trip had a small camp set up right on the tip of Kirribilli Point, And they described Bungaree's camp being in the wood not far from this spot. So from this, we can, with a fair degree of confidence, know that Bungaree was generally in the vicinity of what's now Admiralty House, the uh, really impressive residence of the Australian Governor General in Sydney. Yep. Um, right on that stunningly beautiful part of the North Shore. Yep. So I think generally that seems to have been the area most associated with Bungaree for the rest of his life. There was a another aborted attempt to set up the George's Head Farm in the last weeks of uh, Macquarie's reign as governor. But again, it was no more successful than the first. Sadly, Bungaree's health deteriorated uh, rather quickly through the 1820s. And so uh, shortly before his death, we have an account in the newspaper saying, Years of drunkenness and some starvation no doubt had their effect in emaciating his frame, the blessings which civilization have bestowed upon the unfortunate Aboriginal population. 
Bungary is seen very ill in the domain one day in 1829, and the account says Bungary is identified with Sydney, and something ought to be done to make his few remaining days easier. He's admitted to the general hospital, the Rum Hospital, that we've mm-hmm. had an episode on. Yeah. And a few weeks later, he is released at his own request to be back with his people, but on full government ration to try to maintain his health. But he does die in 1830. And there's a lengthy column in the Sydney Gazette. The whole thing kind of drips with disdain. Fairly hard reading. Interestingly, also, all mention of his earlier activities in these voyages of exploration are completely absent from this column in the newspaper. That's strange. It seems like his role in this last decade of his life is so prominent in Sydney that his whole persona and character is completely associated with that. It's kind of forgotten all of the role that he played earlier in his life. Yeah. This newspaper article says that he will be interred at Rose Bay and that a detailed account of all the ceremonies used at the death and the funeral we shall furnish for the information of our readers on Tuesday, which I think was two days later. But that never comes, sadly. So we don't really know much about what happened with his burial at Rose Bay. And despite trying to look into it, heavily, I haven't been able to find out much more. There is the suggestion that his burial site is somewhere near Rose Bay Golf Course. There is a tiny terraced garden public park uh, in Point Piper that's named Bungaree Reserve after him and because of close proximity of his burial. I don't think it's at this point known where exactly he is buried, unlike Flinders, who was eventually uh, discovered. Yeah, okay. Well, maybe his time is coming. Okay, so the newspaper covered his death and then said they were going to cover his funeral shortly and there was never never anything written. Yeah, I don't know if that's just a poor journalistic quality, if, uh, yeah, (laughs) some kind of cruel joke. I I feel like it might just be an unreliable newspaper. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. But for ages I was searching it up and I was like, oh, they promised, like, it's got to be there. And I was looking through the newspaper, I could never (laughs) find it. And then I finally read a secondary source that said, like, and they promised to to talk about it. And then they never published anything more. (laughs) Always good when you can find another secondary source. (laughs) Yes. To verify. Otherwise you think you're just going mad. So we've already discussed some things that are named after Bungary in uh, Australia, including the southern tip of Bribey Island outside Brisbane. Um, but within Sydney, we have Bungaree Road in Toongabbie. Uh, there are also a number of places on the central coast, which is the area most associated with Bungaree, mm. uh, including the Bungaree Reserve in West Gosford and the Bungaree Aboriginal Association, which is the largest Aboriginal NGO on the central coast. Okay, wow. There's still quite a lot of, a lot of places where his name crops up, at least. Yeah, yeah. So his name is there if you're looking for it. Another figure that probably doesn't get as much historical attention as they should often think of this conversation about the role of statues in commemorating people. Yeah. The sort of world divided into, you know, maybe two camps of people, the people that think, well, we need to retain all these statues of old white men because, you know, that's history and you can't just erase history by ripping down a statue. Then the counterpoint to that is, well, it's, it's always very telling who we choose to uh, memorialize in statue form. And it's so rarely people like this who I think can probably tell us as much or more about the history of our country as your Captain Cook statue, which is, you know, yeah. also arguably valid. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was particularly striking for me, especially because of the way that Flinders trajectory has been so different. There are far more statues of Flinders cat trim in Australia, astronomically more than there are (laughs) places named after Bungary, depictions of Bungary or yeah, statues of Bungary in Australia. And it just seems like that's a very historical choice to forefront Flinders in our telling of history and neglect any examination or discussion of Bungary. Yeah. Absolutely. There's even a Flinders Motel in Coonabarabran, very far from anywhere he ever went. There's so many things. He's got mountain ranges, universities. He's got a bit of everything, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you very much for listening to my somewhat ill-prepared story. I've struggled a bit over the last two weeks, but I'm glad I was able to get something together. I think it remains for me to ask what I have to look forward to in our next episode. Yes, it's been a pleasure. This is not so much a clue because you've demonstrated this season a lack of aptitude for clues so much as telling you what next week's episode is going to be about. All right. Tell me, tell me. (laughs) So this episode is the spiritual successor to your Red Cedar episode. I prepared it back in 2021 when we were scheduled to do a live episode of Stories 
from Sydney with the Sydney Harbour Federation Trust. Now, as you will no doubt recall, because of COVID, that didn't go ahead. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I've had the content for the episode sitting on my computer since then waiting. And I figured that since we're doing an Indigenous-themed season, it'd be a good chance to talk about some of the common native plant genuses that call Sydney Harbour home. Very nice. And their Indigenous uses, I imagine. Yep, a little bit of everything in there. Cool. Maybe we can even get to the Woomera. We don't get to the Woomera, but you're welcome to. (laughs) Excellent. Well, I'm very much looking forward to it. I feel like that would be a great thing for being able to walk through Sydney today and notice and appreciate those plants and their significance. Yes, history you can really hold in your hand. Yeah, wonderful. All right. Well, thanks very much for that, Jed. If our listeners have any comments or questions or would like to get in touch, you can always reach us at storiesfromsydney at gmail.com. We'll see you next fortnight for my story from Sydney. See you then.